0: Stud is here. Please welcome your Studcast host of television and radio fame, Tony Basilio.
2: Episode number two, it is hard for me to believe, still pinching myself here at the opportunity because 93 years and four generations later, for the first time, the real story of the first family of wrestling will be told in its entirety, no stone left unturned, no secret kept and it has been a secret till now we unlock the vault the mind of the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller and stud episode number two
1: welcome back my friend great to have you great to be here very happy to be here and uh, looking forward to it man let's let lay it out there for him today Tony
2: and before we do anything else stud that is a tremendous intro To this program that I had absolutely nothing to do with, it's all you. That is a tremendous piece of imaging. Where did that come from?
1: That came from a personal friend of mine. His name is David Summers. He's with WTVY Radio in Dothan, Alabama. He's the number one country station in the market, and he manages. Four stations within the same building. He's very, very talented guy, and uh, I want to thank him. Uh, and I'm sorry that we didn't mention him last week because, as you were saying, Tony, this is not scripted. We're just uh, laying it all out there, and we just didn't have an opportunity to mention him last week, but he does a tremendous job, and we I think we will probably be changing our intro a little bit here and there. We'll be changing a few things that we started out with last week and within the next two programs. He will be giving us some more great stuff, hopefully. One of the things that
2: we're going to do this week for sure is work in some interaction from the very active community Uh, That exists over on Facebook at the Ron Fuller Welsh page. And if you have a question about anything, it doesn't have to be about today's show. It can be about any of the history of the Welsh family. Any story that you've heard about the Fuller wrestling family. Uh, Anything that you want to know about. Anything that Ron's been involved with. We can jump around, jump back chronologically. We aim to do this chronologically, but... We can always go back and we can always go forward depending on the question. And later on in episode two, we're going to tackle some of the questions that folks have sent in. And I know you've been humbled by the response because we've gotten them from all over the globe, which speaks to the reach of what you've done in your career and your family, Tennessee Stud as well.
1: Right. I've been humbled by a whole experience. Uh, I'm not a big social media guy. I've got myself uh, on Facebook. And I started to realize, Tony, that something that I never realized before is how popular I was and, and how people perceived me and, and how they enjoyed what I did and to, I'm just inundated with comments that are just fabulous from fans and saying you're a big part of my life I, I went to see you when I was a kid and I did this and you were you were my favorite and and it's a very humbling experience but it really taught me that that wrestling's much bigger. You made a good point last week in the first stud cast it goes beyond. What other things, other sport, it encompasses people's, not just their minds, but their emotions and everything else. It's an intriguing sport, really. I'm just happy to be able to to give people the perspective from someone who's lived it. Well,
2: case in point, dear friend of mine, who also happens to be one of the great sponsors of my local radio show in Knoxville, where I've been on the air for, thank God, a quarter century, which is a, a minor miracle, to anybody who knows me, but Bart Fricks is in our studio today as we record today, and he was telling you, as we had a, a break in the action a few minutes ago, that you're a childhood hero of his. When I found that out, I invited him down here, and I, I've known him for, you know, a good 15 or so years. This is the first time he's been in my studio, which speaks to the power <laughs> of wrestling. Because let me tell you something, he, he wouldn't be here otherwise, and that's okay, But the truth is that what you did and what guys in your profession did the way the sport used to be presented compared to the modern day. And I'm not here to poo-poo what goes on now. But there's something that was in the soul about the way the sport used to be presented. And that's kind of what we aim to do here is to put it back in that light so that we can all feel like little kids again as we hear you tell these stories. And you did that in episode one. I want to commend you for that. You did that in episode one.
1: I wanted to tell the history, but at the same time, I also wanted to tell stories about the people so that I hope that those listeners out there get a feel for what my family was all about. And all these stories are real. Yeah. I'm making none of these up. These are just from my memory and from riding on in the road, on, down the road with my granddad and being educated at an early age of what wrestling was all about. So when we left off, your grandfather had
2: just arrived in Ohio, and he was wrestling in a territory there. Coinciding with that, there were all kinds of things going on across the country in some of the bigger markets in wrestling. You had mentioned Toots You had mentioned Strangler Lewis and some other guys. But your father starts to carve out his own niche in the flyover states, as we call them now. In, in a lot of the red states, your father had started to carve out his own niche in the
1: heartland,
2: and all of a sudden, you were telling us your father is born, and you want to pick it up from there. Go ahead.
1: Yeah. So my grandfather's there in 1924. He starts to wrestle in Columbus. My dad's born in that time frame. And at about the same time, just so that we can keep people abreast of of the growth of the family in the sport, okay? About the same time that my dad is born, my granddad, Roy, has his youngest brother named Lester. And he's born at that same time. Now, Lester's going to become a star down the road. My dad's going to become a star down the road. My granddad has a sister named Bonnie. She marries a guy named Virgil Hatfield, and they have three sons during that period of time. Their last name is actually Hatfields, but when they start to wrestle, they become the Fields brothers. It's uh, Lee Fields, Bobby Fields, and Don Fields. So now they're all young kids at this point in time. And these are five future stars within my family that are just being born. And one of them, Virgil Hatfield, that marries my grandfather's sister, he ends up being a referee. The family is growing. And right now, it's just Roy doing his thing, but he, at about the same time, while he's still in in Ohio, trains his brother, Herb, and he trains his older brother, Jack. Herb Welch was a fabulous wrestler. Herb Welch was three times world junior heavyweight champion. He was so good at one time that he held the title for five years straight. Nobody had ever held it that long. And he had a car wreck. And they took the title from him because he wasn't able to defend it. It darn near killed him. And he came back and started wrestling again after that. As time goes by here, Herb is a very good wrestler. Roy, obviously, is a very good wrestler. And those two won the World Tag Team Championships. Roy taught them just like he had been taught by Dutch Mantel and Cal Farley. He taught them to shoot. He didn't teach them to wrestle in the ring. He didn't teach them to bounce off the ropes. He didn't teach them anything other than how to hurt people and how to protect the sport. People have a tendency to come to you when you're a wrestler and they they say, oh, well, you know, that wrestling, it's all this and it's all that. When I grew up, I wanted to be, my dad started teaching me to shoot when I was five years old. I always wanted to be able, if somebody came to me and said, well, I don't know about this, said, show me this Oh, show me that. I don't think that hurts. I was always in a position and had the ability to prove to people within two or three minutes that you don't want to do this. This is not for kids and it's not phony and it's real. That's the way he trained his brothers. He trained the first two brothers. Now you've got three wrestlers in the same family, and that's the first time in the history of wrestling. So your father's born when? My father's born in 1927. Okay. Roy went there in 1924, three years later as my father's born. About the same time, Lester Welch is born. Fields' brothers, Bobby, Lee, and Don, they are born. The family is beginning to grow in stature and grow in numbers. And so he teaches Herb and Jack same way he was taught. My dad then, as he grows up, just an indication of how Roy thought and how he handled things. We didn't get to one. I want to back up here, and I'm very sorry that I missed this. Go for it. But when we talked last time about Dutch Mantel and Roy finally beating Dutch Mantel and Dutch sending him to Columbus, well, Roy was working in the oil fields in Borger, Texas, and he went to quit and say, you know, I'm leaving, I'm going to wrestle. And a few guys knew that he was training to be a wrestler. Back in those days, that Borger oil field was one of the few in the United States. It had a lot of wells drilled within that particular area. There was a bully that was in there and all that group there was hundreds of guys that worked on the rigs there and there was one particular guy that was big he was Roy described him he said he was kind of like a bear he was probably uh, six feet plus which back in those days we're talking early 20s six feet plus and well over 200 pounds and he dominated everybody there he drove guys on those rigs crazy humiliated them treat them horribly he didn't ever mess with roy and i don't know whether roy said i don't know whether he knew i was training to be a wrestler or whatever it was but when roy went back the last day he was in borger texas he went back and his buddies all he'd shake everybody's hand and uh and along comes um the bully and he says hey uh yeah i hear you're Gonna be a wrestler, huh? You're gonna to go to Ohio or someplace, you know. And he goes, you know, I've I've waited all this time. and I've never had anything to do with you, and I've never caused you any problems. What well, today is your day, right? So he makes a real big deal out of cornering Roy in front of starts out to be one oil rig. Roy's a different type of guy, so he says, okay. He goes, let's just it's big dirt here. He says, let's just going out here in the middle of the ground here and and we'll find out who's toughest well all the guys they hear they hear and they see what's going on they just come down from all the oil rigs they come around and they form a big circle probably 10 deep and they're in the middle roy and the big guy so roy takes him down roy just takes him down he did he puts an oklahoma ride on him now it's hard to explain how a resting hole, but simply, an Oklahoma ride, it's a very big amateur move. The, all of the amateurs use it. It starts with a grapevine, and a grapevine is when you take both your legs and you wrap them around one guy's leg. Okay, and then you straddle, when an Oklahoma ride, you straddle the back of his body. If he's on his hands and knees, if you can imagine this, you run one leg in between his legs, you connect that to your leg, and then you reach across his body and you grab that left arm. You can't beat anybody with it. You can't hurt anybody with it, but you can control the big man. Roy was smart enough to know that this guy's really big and he's going to blow up. When you gain control of him, he's going to struggle. And so, and the guy did. The guy, he had him on the ground. He puts the the Oklahoma ride on him. The guy gets to his feet, and he jumps backwards and lands on him. That's figuring that, you know, I'm big and heavy, and he's going to let me go, I'm going to hurt him. And Roy just holds on to him. And he gets up again, he does it to him again. Finally, after three or four minutes, the guy's tongue's starting to hang out. He's He's blown. He's gone. This is what my granddad was all about. He could have, at that point, got up, stomped him in the face, and smashed his head or whatever. But his thinking was different, most people. Instead of doing that, he let go of one of his arms. He's holding his left arm with both arms. He runs it around that arm and behind his head. He has what's called an abdominal stretch. A lot of people have seen that wrestling move. They do it standing up. He's got an abdominal stretch, but they're on the ground he has now total control of him and he has a loose hand that he can do something with so he reaches down and he unzips the guy's pants and he reaches in and he takes out his you know what okay and he takes out his peter let's just call it a peter okay? We're going to tell the whole story. Okay. we tell uh, the whole story. Uh, whoa, whoa, story. Okay? okay. Go ahead. So he takes out his Peter, okay? Now the, all the crowd of guys that hate this guy, they would start cheering. They're like, whoa, look at this. This is something else. And he goes real loud. He says, look at that. He goes, no wonder this guy's such an ass. Can you believe how little this thing is? <laughs> he starts humiliating him in front of all these hundreds of oil
2: rig workers. Now, that's a stretching story that we've That's a heard. really I, th- stretching story. You're really story. stretching somebody that's there. That's a
1: really stretching story. So he, instead of busting him up, instead of breaking him up, he s- humiliates him, which is, in my opinion, after, he, after him telling me his story, I saw it instantly. I said, couldn't have done anything worse to him than that, right? You couldn't do anything worse than me. I and, know that. And, and he, so he finishes humiliating him and he turns him loose and he gets up the guy's just laying there and he's got his head down now he's like oh my god you know this is just hard. what am i going to say to this how am i going to live through this and roy just starts walking through the crowd and the old red guys they just part like the red sea for him and he walks right through uh they're shaking his hand and patting him on the back, and, God, that was great, Roy, Cheese, and that he never came back. He walks away, and that's the end of his experience with the oil rig. Now, I wanted to tell that story because I think it gives people the perspective of what Roy was all about. I mean, he could have been an animal, and he decided, let's do it a different way. So he goes to Ohio. Now we're in Ohio. My dad is born. He trains his two brothers to wrestle. And my dad grows up, he's about four or five years old, he has real curly hair. He goes down the street a lot and he plays with a kid that's older than him. Same bully situation as we kind of talked about here. And my dad comes back and tells Roy, he says, you know, I, dad wore a hat all the time. He says he, he says, he he treats me bad and he hurts me. And he says, what do you mean he hurts you? And he says, well, you know, he'll he'll take my hat off and he'll grab my hair. And he says, I got all these curls and everything, and he just yanks my head, and he drags me and pushes me onto the ground and all that. So Roy says, well, let's take care of that problem. And so Dad says, okay, he's this young boy. You know, he goes, okay, well, what do we do? And he says, well, first of all, he cuts his hair off. He just shaves his head, my dad's head. He's like four years old, five years old, and he puts the hat back on his head. And he says, now I want you to go back down there where the boy is. And he says, uh, when he takes your hat off and he reaches for your hair, he said, I want you to grab a double handful of his hair. And he said, I want you to yank out as much of it as you can. Just start pulling and jerking his hair until he screams and cries. So dad goes back down there, does exactly what he says, and never had a problem with the kid again. Roy had an uncanny knack of how to put people in their place without hurting them. And if he did have to hurt them, then he he did what he had to do. So he's grown now to be a star in both Columbus and Toledo. He's a sharp guy. He sees what's happening. He sees that wrestlers get paid a little and promoters get paid a lot. Okay? And he says, now I've talked, this is stories. We ride down the road and I say, how did it all happen? How did you get to Tennessee? And he says, I figured out pretty quickly that the real money is in owning it, not just being a wrestler. He says, I went to an area where I didn't think there was probably any wrestling much going on. So he goes to Tennessee. He picks a town to live in called Dyersburg, where I was born dyersburg tennessee it's about 80 miles north of memphis just east of the mississippi river and he settles down there with him goes herb and jack and uh and all of his family members his sister bond who has the three young boys the fields brothers everybody moves to dyersburg and he starts to build his territory so you know i was very curious about how do you do that you know how do you build a, a that kind of a business. So he said he would find where they had wrestling. Let's say Memphis as an example. And he started in big cities. He found out that they were having a match in Memphis. So he went to Memphis. He waits until almost bell time. And he, he said he then he would go to the dressing room, one of the dressing rooms, and he would kick the door open. And he would go into the dressing room, and he'd introduce himself. He'd say, hey, my name's Roy Welch. And he would look at everybody, take his time, methodically let them all grasp but What's this all about? And he'd go, none of you guys are wrestlers. In fact, all of you are impersonating wrestlers. And he goes, as of right now, you're going to take off your gear if you've got it on you're going to put it in your bag and you're going to walk out this door and i'll never see you again and uh so i asked him i said well geez uh, you know did they do it he said bunches you know he said if there was three guys in there he said two of them would get up and go and he said one would stay sometimes i said well what happened with that one guy and he said well Usually I would say, so you're going to stay. You think you're tough, right? And the guy would say, whatever. He had a way of doing it. I saw him do this to a couple of guys. I asked him, well, what would you do? And he said, I would grab, his, grab him in the throat. And I had seen it. And what he did is he would take his hand and he would take that thumb and stick it into his esophagus. Now, I mean, drive it in there really deep. So he cut off his wind. He said I would pull him face-to-face with me. And he said I would first, I would pull him up, and I would growl in his ear like a bear. (sighs) Give him one of those growls. And then he said that I would tell him, you don't want this. You don't want none of this. You know, you better get your shit and go, you know. And he said a lot of times that was all it took. And I said, well, what happened if it didn't? He said, then he paid the price. If he stayed, he paid the price. And I said... Well, what would you do? And he said, I did whatever I had to do. And then he said, but I was trying to build a wrestling business. He said, there wasn't very few wrestlers. You know, he said, other than my brothers, I didn't know hardly anybody. So he said, these were the guys I wanted. He said, that meant this guy had guts. He had balls enough to stand up to me. And he said, they might kick his ass and leave him laying. And then I would help him to his feet and say, you want to be a wrestler? I think you may have a shot. And he said, I would take that guy and I would train him. He said, then I would go across to the other dress room and do the same thing kick the door in, do the same thing, run off the yellow dogs and keep the best of the bunch. And then he would ask them, where's the guy that runs it? The promoter. And he would go to the promoter and he'd do the same thing with the throat deal except he never had any problem with the promoter because the promoters were small and they weren't athletes and weren't they weren't tough and he would drag them up there and whisper in their ear and tell them you're finished you're not a wrestling promoter you're nothing to do with wrestling if i ever see you anywhere promoting or having any type of wrestling match you are gonna be in trouble and he said I closed the town. I would then go to the ring, get people's attention, and say, Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Roy Welch, and there'll be no wrestling here tonight. You can go home. And he would shut him down. He shut down town after town. He took Memphis. He took Nashville. He took Chattanooga. He took Knoxville. He just spread himself out, and he started taking over any competition that was there so that it became known pretty shortly that there's this guy here and he's a really bad son of a gun and you don't want to have a wrestling match without his permission so he strong-armed his way into creating the first territory and it was one of the initial territories it became so large that uh He expanded into Arkansas, he expanded into Missouri, he went into Kentucky, he went into West Virginia, he went into Virginia, it was Tennessee, it was Alabama, it was Mississippi, it was Louisiana, it was everything basically from the Ohio River to the Gulf of Mexico. And if you want to go on a wrestling there, you had to deal with Roy. That was a bad situation for anybody, they didn't want to mess with him, so they just they quit operating there.
2: So, as he built his territory, who were some of the guys that would have been wrestling for him at this time in those states?
1: Moody Palmer. Now we're talking about the 1930s. Okay, we're talking Depression era when he told me that they used to wrestle. Gas was two dollars a gallon. Okay, and they would, and uh, and the payoff was fifty cents. He'd wrestle for fifty cents. He said a lot of times they couldn't pay guys fifty cents; they might make less than that. He said that he had the guys that he found. He had to train almost all of them. Okay, so they became his group, his guys that he could depend on, his stars, and he used those wherever he went. He said he had such a group of nasty people. Nasty were all so nasty. He said they used to ride in the car together, and they would have getting fights in the car they would be riding along two in the front two in the back and the two in the back would go at it Yeah, you son of a bitch you know and they'd get into it he'd pull the car off open the doors and yank them out and let them continue out there on the side of the road boom boom they'd fight they'd fight they'd bust each other's eyes whatever it was and he would watch he i said well what did you do and he said i watch he said i know when they're getting tired when i saw that they were both ready to quit i would go time And they would drop their hands and get back in the car and sit there side by side, both bleeding, like off the sweat, and wipe the blood off, and they would continue down the road. He said, might happen twice in the same trip he said sometime Herb and I travel together a lot so he said I would drive and Herb might be sitting in the passenger seat and he said on one occasion he could remember that they had bought some plates when you bought gas back in the day I can almost remember this far back I hate to say it but I remember when they used to give you plates if you bought a certain filled up your tank you got a dozen plates or whatever it was he said that they had filled up and got the plates and they had put them in the back window he was driving the car, so one of the guys sitting in the back seat got mad at him. And he's driving, so the guy figured, well, he can't do nothing to me from here, so the guy reached up there and slapped him upside the head, right? He didn't even slow the car down. He just put his feet on the, on the roof and, and walked his way over into the back seat on top of the guy, and Herb slid over and just kept driving the car, just kept the car going. And then he, says, then he said, then I, I learned how to car fight. I said, well, what do you mean car fight? And he said, well, I used to jerk them out and let them fight. He said, but when you car fight, he says, if you can get a guy on his back in the back floorboard, he said, he's yours. He has no way he can fight his way out. So he said, I'd just walked myself into the back seat he said i grabbed the guy stuffed him down into the floorboard, got on top of him and he said i reached up here and started with those plates i did the plate and break it over his face and then i reach and get another one he said herb's driving 80 miles an hour down the road and i'm breaking plates on the guy's face and i said once you get to the end of the plates he said you know guy's pretty bloody we had to stop (laughs) you know okay herb pull over you know, he said, we drug him out, left him laying there for a little while, and he came to again, and they put him back in, and he went ahead and wrestled that night. You know, he said it was like crazy atmosphere. One time, he told me a story about he didn't have enough wrestlers, and they had four guys on the cart. And they only had three guys in the car. So this was the old days, and everybody hitchhiked. There were a lot of poor people. He saw a big guy on the side of the road. And he was hitchhiking. So he pulled the car over, and he says, hey, uh, the guy got in he said he asked the guy where are you going i don't know. wherever wherever i can go you know it's at bad times looking for a job and uh he says uh well you ever wrestle and the guy goes i don't know well a little bit but i don't know he said well we're wrestlers and you're gonna to wrestle tonight we need a guy so he takes this guy And they put him in the ring. They get a two out of three fall. They wrestle single match, two out of three fall tag. And they scuff him up. They mat burn him. They don't hurt him too bad because they need him to get him through a 40-minute, 50-minute, hour-and-a-half match. Keep him there and keep the fans entertained. And they stretched him really good, and when it was all over, oh, the guy went back to the dressing room. He's hanging his head, and he's huffing and puffing, and his knees are bleeding, and his elbows are bleeding, and he's just all scraped and scratched, and and it came time for the pay. So Roy goes around and he says he gives Herb whatever it was fifty cents and he gives the other guy fifty cents and, and he gives the hitchhiker. He said Herb took the money, he was happy to get it. The other wrestler took the money, he's happy to get it. He gave the hitchhiker the fifty cents and the guy went, Are you nuts? He goes, You guys do this for fifty cents? He goes, Oh, you gotta be crazy. Do you do this every night? And He says, hell yeah, we do it every night. The guy went, God almighty. He said, it made me so mad. He said, then I beat the hell out of him. After all that, he said, you know, after he bitched about the payoff, I said, well, now I'm going to kick your ass. He said, well, I think I will. So he just went ahead and whipped his ass. It was a strange time. There were other people. Now, things are going on in the country now at this time, okay? We're in the 30s now. You got out west, the funks you got guys like Dory Sr. that's starting to develop in Amarillo. Uh, you've got like Paul Bosch in, in Houston. You've got in in the east, you've got Jack Pfeffer, and you've got these guys along the eastern seaboard. They're starting to organize a little bit. They're starting to get connected and say, hey, I'm gonna, I'll run over here on a so-and-so, and I'm going to run over there. And people started dividing the country. People started controlling. They started to say, okay, we're going to control this area. This is going to be my town's. So my granddad started with Tennessee. He spread into into Arkansas. He spread spread across 12 states. At one time in the 40s and into the 50s, he ran 12 states. He ran 25% of America was under the control of Roy Welch. 25% of the states, 12 out of the 48 states, he operated business in. And you didn't mess with him. You went in there, and there were times people tried to have, they tried to set up opposition, they tried to have their matches. And he did the same routine he did when he started it. He would go and kick the dressing room door open and beat the hell out of whoever it was. And, you know, that that was how he controlled his business. So we've introduced some new terminology here. We have car fights. Oh, yeah.
2: We have a guy, shall we say, getting exposed and stretched Oh, yes, in a different oh, yes, way. yes, oh, yes. We, we've had some interesting stuff here in segment one. Now, when we come back from this break, we are going to, for the first time, take some questions from f- some folks that are enjoying the podcast over on the Facebook page today, which is Ron Fuller Welch at Facebook. Again, Ron Fuller Welch. So... If you want to get a question in, perhaps we'll deal with it. In the meantime, a few messages. And then we're back with more of your Studcast, Studcast 2, as we continue right after this.
1: All right. Thanks for this opportunity. I want to take it to speak to my fans directly here. I'm just so overwhelmed by the response from the first Studcast. It was absolutely unbelievable. Also, the just the critiques from people were amazing. I haven't had one bad comment from anyone I want to thank you all of the members that are on Ron Fuller Welch on Facebook Uh, there's also now because of the great number of fans that I picked up and friends that I've picked up there's a second Facebook site it's Ron Fuller the Tennessee stud you can friend me there like me there I want to keep that growing I want to thank everybody, like I said, again, for the tremendous response of the first studcast and the great comments about it. You can join us. Our website is ronfullertennesseestud.com. And obviously the studcast is going to be on there every Monday. They'll be available. They may even potentially be available on Sunday nights. We want to jump it up because we've had such tremendous response. Some people have just begged to have it on Sunday, so we'll be giving you some news about that in the near future. Thanks again so much for all of you and, and listening to our studcast and also supporting us and telling your friends about us. We sure appreciate it, and God bless all of you.
0: You are back seated ringside on this edition of the Ron Fuller Studcast.
2: com. Make sure you check out the website. Also, if you want to ask a question, go to the Facebook page Ron Fuller Welch and Tennessee Stud I welcome you back. Now for the first time, we're going to do some questions and I want you to go ahead and get right to that, my friend.
1: Okay. This I really like, Tony. I'll be honest with you. I've done some of this From the early days when I started wrestling in Florida, I've gone on shows that were three-hour talk shows. In the early days of talk shows, they have me scheduled for 30 minutes and end up doing the whole three hours because people call in. I like taking the calls. So this, for me, is fun. I'm just going to start out here. Uh, We've got a lot of questions here that uh, people have sent me. And uh, this first one is from a guy named Robert Counts. He's in San Francisco, California. And uh, he says, is there a wrestler that comes to mind that you never work with and particularly wish you had? Which is a good question, you know. And, uh, and thinking about it, I wrestled a whole lot of world champions in my time. And the one guy, I was a younger guy when he was still around that I would have probably liked to wrestle is a guy that was world champion at one time named Buddy Rogers. He was he was the first Ric Flair. In fact, I think that's where Ric Flair got to be Ric Flair was from. We're looking at Buddy Rogers. Buddy Rogers had great physique. He had uh, charisma back in the day, b- before charisma was really important. And he he was very good. He was a great wrestler. I saw my dad wrestle him. I saw Lester wrestle him. I saw couple of the Fields brothers wrestling for world championships, uh, wrestling world championship matches, and uh, obviously they didn't beat him, but uh, he is the one guy, I would say, that picking somebody, that would be a guy that I would really have liked to have wrestled.
2: You know, and to your point, there's a online, recently been some video that surfaced of Ric Flair and Buddy Rogers in the series of matches that they had together back in the early 80s. And Buddy had to be climbing the ladder back then, but his physique, the way that he presented himself in the ring, his style, the way that he worked, tough guy. Oh, yeah. Tough guy.
1: A class guy. And, and, a, class and guy. a class guy. And a class guy. I mean, that's what... Great re- combination, that's, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you hardly ever see that. I mean, he had it all. He he really had it all. And uh, that's one reason I was attracted to him. That I was a kid. I was... 12, 14 years old, and I was uh, pretty well amazed. I said, damn, this guy's got real talent.
2: So, Robert you know. Counts, thank you. That's a great question out of San Francisco. Uh, Who we got next,
1: Stud? Okay, we've got here uh, Will Wheeler out of Martinez, Georgia. And uh, he asked me, how many shots at the NWA World Heavyweight did you receive? Best of my knowledge, I went back and tried to figure out, and I wrestled it at least 10 times for the NWA World Championship. Now, he's talking about NWA. We'll just keep this to the NWA, okay? But I wrestled during my career a lot of world champions, NWA champions, that weren't champions, that had been champions, or that were going to become champions. And I was kind of thinking about this. I wrestled Luthez. So did my father, and so did my grandfather. So how old would Fez have been? When well, you got he was probably with 65, in his 60s, when I wrestled him. Do you have, because
2: at that point you're probably somewhere between a kid and a seasoned wrestler, are you nervous before you get in the ring with an all-time great?
1: Oh, gosh, are you kidding? Hell yes. I mean, Luthez, to me, was one of the greatest NWA champions of all time. In fact, when they formed the National Wrestling Alliance, he was their first champion. Okay, and he was everything Buddy Rogers was except he shot. He had a persona about him. He had great physique. He had he was f- very intelligent and just a phenomenal wrestler. And if he had a problem, he handled it in the ring. And he had few problems because all the other wrestlers knew he could handle it in. The and
2: ring. you had to know that even oh. as a kid. So if I step out of line here with this guy, if I mess up if i take a liberty if i make him
1: look bad i could get hurt here oh well and and you had so
2: much respect for him you'd let him hurt you
1: oh yeah and he probably did hurt me a couple times in that match i mean lou was very tight and rugged and i call it stiff so i wrestled lou i wrestled pat o'connor pat o'connor won the championship from Lou luthes actually and I wrestled O'Connor, and he became a personal friend of mine. He came to Knoxville when he was in his 60s and wrestled for me with Southeastern Wrestling. He was, like I said, a friend, and I spent a lot of time. Gene Koninsky, we're talking way back, big Canadian, 6'5", 275, 280, bald-headed. I wrestled him in St. Louis, and he was he was a load. I could see why he was the champion. It was my third year in the ring, and I saw I was wrestling Gene Kaninsky. I was like, oh, jeez, man, it's going to be a long night. Now, how was he toward a young wrestler
2: like you? Here's a guy that's been all over the world. He's an all-time great. Is he kind toward you?
1: Does he initiate you? How'd that go? Well, he was very respectful. He was very mm-hmm. nice, uh, you know, but uh, – And I was beginning to be good. This was 1974. A lot of people were saying I was going to be champion. There was talk that I would be a world champion. And and I probably would have been had I not started my own wrestling company and eliminated myself from traveling. My first four years, I went to Australia. I went everywhere. I went to the, all the Caribbean. Uh, I wrestled in all the different territories and tried to start making a name for myself. I remember a wrestling gene, and I remember at one point in the match, I threw him in the ropes. I dropped down, and uh, I flying head-scissored him with him running. And when the match was over, he came to the dressing room, and he says, he said, kid, he goes, nobody's ever done that to me. He said, it's your size and your height and your ability to move like you move. He goes, it's pretty astounding, you know. He was very complimentary, you know. He beat me, obviously. But he was, he came, and and I, and I was impressed by the fact he came. And he says, you basically he says, you're going to be good.
2: And guys like that teach you, when you're older, how to handle the kids that come
1: after. Oh, yeah, yeah. You,
2: you learn a lot from that. as like You don't know, you probably don't know you're learning that. Uh, but you're learning the the right way to treat somebody.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. You you learn and the wrestling 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 is like that. I mean, when when you go in as a I don't care where it is, there's a certain way you present yourself and you handle yourself. Uh when I went to Australia as an example you go in the dressing room and you're with guys from all over the world. You've got Mario Milano from Italy. You've got uh, Spiros Arion from Greece. You've got Sabu Singh from India. Uh, You've got all these guys that you've never met. You don't know who the hell they are. Some of them when you first go. I always went immediately and shook every man's hand, introduced myself and said my Ron Fuller and you know, and nice to meet you. I've heard about you. Compliments are exchanged normally. You know, there's a certain amount of respect. And uh, and and you do the same thing when you finish a match. You usually go and, and shake a guy's hand and say it was a great match, you know, and you're, you're
2: really good.
1: And that's customary.
2: I remember Archie Goldie, Mongolian stomper. Mm. He told me one time he was working an independent event here later in his life. And he had showered before the match, brushed his teeth, put on some good cologne. He said, I want to show the person I'm in that ring with respect. And he said, I learned that early in my career. That's what you do, you don't go out there all haggard. You go out there, but you show respect to that person you're in the ring with, even if it's a kid. Independent deal.
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, That's a neat lesson, man. You brought me to another story here. I'm gonna tri- I'm gonna switch gears here a little bit, but you you've reminded me of something. Okay, back in the early days, back to the reverting back where we were talking about in the thirties, Herb was Herb was very good. There was a wrestler. Uh, I can't remember his name, but my granddad told me the story. He said he he was a farmer during the day, and he was he was a rugged old guy, and he never took a bath. So he had come directly from the farm and go right into the dressing room and right into the ring, and he stunk. I mean, he smelled horrible. So Herb told him one night. Herb told him it was a two-out-of-three-fall match. After the first fall, he said, "You stink." You know, he goes, you just you. You got to take a shower or get yourself cleaned up before you go out in the ring." And the guy said, "I ah, kissed my ass." He said, "Whatever he wanted to, you know, I like kiss off." You know, so Herb. I don't know we're gonna we're gonna get edgy here again i hope this ain't gonna get too much for the audience but so herb this is the type of guy herb was herb herb goes over but then the break about the time this bell rings for the second fall the guy goes to the ring and herb takes a poop and takes it and puts it underneath his armpit and he goes to the ring they ring the bell, and he goes straight across, and he grabs the guy in the headlock, twists his head around, and shoves it into his armpit and clamps down on him. And the guy starts screaming, screaming, and he takes him down on the mat. Now all he's got is a headlock, and the crowd's wondering, what in the hell's going on? And the guy is just kicking and flailing and just, oh, just, I, I can't, can't take it, I can't take it. Finally, Herb lets him go, and he jumps up, and he's got it all over his face, and he screams, and the crowd's still quiet. They're like, what in the heck is this all about? And he goes, referee, this man has sh- the S word, right? And, and uh, so that's kind, of, uh, that's kind of what you did. That was Herb's disrespect of a guy who did not clean himself up properly and took no pride in himself and came to the ring dirty. I doubt that a guy ever did that with Herb again. I'll guarantee you the guy. In fact, the story was Roy said that guy took a shower every time he came
2: before he went in the ring. Because there's a sense of respect. There's a sense (laughs) of where we're going to respect each other. We're going to respect the moment. We're going to respect the other person's body, their livelihood, you know, yeah. We're not here yeah. to kill each other. Yeah. This is. We're yeah. not. We're not back no. in the 19 no, teens like we sure. started our podcast. So you've got time for another question if you want to
1: squeeze one more in there. Okay. Let's see. This one. Yeah. This is to me. This is. I'm gonna call this the question of the day. I told fans that I would take the question of the day and I would. Uh, I would send them a photo. And this is my winner here. This question here and this is an up to date. Question here and this is from a John. Nicole in Orlando Florida and uh, the question was what was the business environment for you in the early 80s during WWF expansion did you think it was possible to go national did you think it would be it would fail but lastly were you offered a payout by Vince tremendous question and I think fans really don't know much about the 80s and what happened in and the vince mcmahon era this may take me a few minutes we got a few minutes go for it come back okay first of all no i was not offered a buyout Uh, at that point i had continental wrestling and we were doing very well in fact we were training and had trained some of his stars that were going to make his business hulk hogan uh tonk man arn anderson it was a litany of guys that came with us, started with us, that went from us on the a uh, Brutus the Barber beefcake. I mean it just went on and on and on. So no, we weren't offered a buyout and, and I was I was fairly sharp in the wrestling business and when Vince went on TV and had his NBC, his first national broadcast, I had already been approached by a company, I had a company out of Houston, Texas, that was selling Continental Wrestling to the Middle East for me. We were on in Saudi Arabia, and we were on in uh, Qatar, uh, Arab Emirates. We were getting some notoriety outside the United States. And, he, and those people came to me and they said, Ron, your talent is tremendous. Your product is really great. We have a connection in New York. NBC is looking for wrestling. They are thinking about trying to do wrestling nationally again. Would you be interested? Because I was a member of the National Wrestling Alliance, because I had grown up in that business, and I knew all those promoters, I had tremendous respect. It goes back to that respect. I had tremendous respect for how hard they all worked and how they had, what they'd had to give up to get to where they were. I could have said, guys, yes, take me to New York. Let's do the deal. But I got to thinking, if I do that, I'm going to be in a position to hurt them all. So I told them no. Okay. Vince Senior, I worked for Vince Senior in Madison Square Garden twice. I worked for Vince Senior in Philadelphia, I liked this Vince Senior. He came to the National Wrestling Alliance meetings. He was not a member, but he was a smart enough and a respectable enough gentleman. He came. He was treated just like he was hardly N.W.A., and in return, he was a good guy. Now when Junior took over, it was a different deal. He asked me here, you know, the business environment in the 80s was good. There were territories kicking butt. Everybody was doing big business. Then he asked me, Do you think it's possible to go national? I kind of answered that. It was possible. I could have done it, but I decided not to. I did not think. He asked me, Did I think I would fail? I knew that Vince Sr., he was a big man uh, promoter. He liked the big guys, but big guys couldn't do what smaller guys did. I was a product of my family lineage and we believed in wrestling we believed in shooters we believed in movement we believed in story we believed in all the things that vince did not believe in because junior saw vince's operation that's why he liked hogan that's why he liked the ultimate warrior he liked the big bodies he liked the bulk you didn't have to be an athlete you didn't have to know how to wrestle I never used those guys. I always wanted my athletes to be wrestlers. I wanted my fans to see the best and not see the bulk. I wanted them to see what it was all about. So I took a different approach. But if I had gone to New York and taken that show, I would have done something totally different. And the landscape of wrestling today would be nothing like it is. I would have gone to all those NWA promoters and say, I have a national vehicle for all of us rather than saying for me I want to be the man I would have said let's all be the men let's take this sport to another level but in a different way than Vince went. Vince says let's put them all out of business and I say let's put them all in business. I would have said send me your best guys. I would have had the best wrestling program anyone had ever seen i would have been able to put roy shire's guys i would have been able to put ray stevens against the dusty road you would have seen the finest wrestling product that would ever been done and we'd have all been in
2: business imagine that you could have had Crockett's guys. You could have had Owen's guys out there in yeah,
0: Oregon. Oregon.
2: You could have had the guys Fritz's out in— Fritz's guys. Yeah, Fritz's guys. And certainly there would have been room for that if you could have gotten everybody to cooperate. What would have been really interesting, though, is that the sport would look completely different than it looks now because now what you have is—and God bless the kids that are trying today. But you got kids today that can't cut a promo unless it's written for them. Yeah. That's what they've done to the business. Yeah. And so you've ripped the soul out of it. You've ripped the personality, it. and you've ripped the soul. And I still watch because it's, it's what's there, but it's not what it was. In it's, fact, it's not even close.
1: That's it. It's not the same product that it was, and it could have still been to this very day. And, and if you think about the number of wrestlers that ended their career within a two-year period, and more than that the thousands and thousands of fans across America that live by that television program mm-hmm. every week and going down there and seeing those guys they disappeared overnight and they never knew what happened to them what happened to all these wrestlers that you why is it just one group one show now you know what's really funny everybody says Vince is so successful Vince does a huge crowds and Vince Vince is numbers are just bigger than they ever were it's bullshit because what's actually happened i'm gonna lay it on the line here go I'll ahead never, go for it i'm never going to make vince vince's hall of fame after this after this deal but i'm going to tell the story like it is i'm not going to scoot around vince i'm going to tell the story the way i see it vince took advantage of of a lot of promotions. Rather than buying out, he bought out a few of the last companies. But he took other companies' best stars and came and used them against them to put them out of business. The way it was done, it shouldn't have been done. It wasn't necessary. We would have had a better product today. We would have had the same type of wrestling that was here in the 80s. All those territories, when you think about a Friday night, let's say any Friday night, you had them running probably 30 cities across the United States. All of them were averaging five to 10,000 people, okay? You're talking about potentially on a Friday night watching wrestling in America. Twenty times one Wrestlemania year's crowd every Friday night. So he not exploded the company, the wrestling business, he imploded the wrestling business. He killed it down to the point that now it's big It's more known nationwide, but it is less by far in the number of audiences, the number of people that are interested, the number of wrestlers that have died. They were great wrestlers that just disappeared. I was one. I'm going to tell you the truth. I saw it coming. I said, I don't think anybody's going to be able to compete with him. I'm going to sell out. That's why he didn't buy me out. I said, it's time for me to go. And that's basically 1987, 88, that's when I left.
2: Yeah, nothing sadder than watching poor Vern Gagne up there choke to death.
1: Imagine. A who was one of the greatest had. wrestlers of all time? Vern Gagne was a tremendous athlete, Olympic wrestler, you know, and a great guy, a great guy guy i spent a lot of time with Vern and his son he was a great guy very like almost all the promoters in the country very respectful had a lot of integrity they told you something they did it it was a grand era and i'm glad i was during that i was part of that grand era but it's a sad place where it is now in my opinion
2: and so in our next Studcast, when we go back we're going to pick it up back here in the late 30s and tell the story from there because there's so much ground to cover from the time that Vince McMahon got his hands on the, on the sport and unfortunately changed it forever. And as Bobby Heenan said, you cannot go back and undo it. The toothpaste is not going back in the tube, and that's too bad. Because I feel sorry for the kids that will never get a chance to be impacted. I talked about my friend Bart who's sitting in the studio. There are kids that will never get a chance to be impacted the way you... Your family and the other folks treated the sport. It won't get that treatment again, and no. you will not have that connection. These kids today that see it, they're getting toys sold to them, and they're seeing other—they're seeing the illusion, but they're not getting the soul of it. Yeah, and I believe that in my heart. Yeah. I really believe that.
1: Oh, that's true. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. When you believe, you believe, and if you believe, you are going to be a fan for life. Yeah. You've got to have respect for it, though, to make
2: it believable. Yep. You, you yourself, as a promoter, you have to have respect for it, and we're back to that respect board again. It's
1: It, it starts at the top. You, what happens in your company starts with you. And I make the decision, just like I said, when I look for talent, I look for something different than what Vince Jr. looked for. I look for the Bob Wharton Juniors. I look for the Dick Slaters. I look for the guys that could do it. And, you know, they didn't have to be big. They didn't have to be muscular. But they could make it happen in the ring.
2: Tennessee Stud, it's been a tremendous honor. Really appreciate your time. Appreciate the thoughts. And we're going to come back in Episode 3 and pick this thing right up, this great story back in the late 30s.
1: We got a lot to talk about, Tony. We got a bear coming pretty soon, the first wrestling bear. So
2: Wrestling bear. maybe, Maybe the wrestling bear will make its debut or its first appearance here on the StudCast. In episode three. In the meantime, Ron, thanks.
1: Thank you very much, Tony. It's been my pleasure.
2: For the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller, this is Tony Basilio reminding you, check out the website, ronfullertennesseestud.com. Also, join the Facebook page, Ron Fuller Welch, when you do. In either spot, ask a question, and hopefully you can get yours answered on the air. If not, I'm sure the stud will be answering them on the Facebook as we go for the Tennessee stud. One more time, my name is Tony Basilio. Check us out on Episode 3. And in the meantime, have yourself a great day. Thanks for joining us on your studcast.
0: Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction. For another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.